Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're headed up to Mackinac Island this week to broadcast live from the Mackinac Policy Conference hosted by the Detroit Regional Chamber of Commerce. All of the major players in Michigan's political and business communities descend on Mackinac for a week of discussion and meetings. But there's always also a buzz, an undercurrent of a different conversation, a big story. In years past, it was Detroit's bankruptcy or the bridge to Canada or the failing auto industry. This year, it's very likely to be the pending gubernatorial race and the wide open field of disparate candidates. Here on the program, we wanted to provide extended conversations with each of the major candidates heading into the August primaries. Today, we're going to speak with the three Democrats who are running, and in a week, we'll hear from the Republicans. Later on today's program, we'll hear from Sri Tanadar and Abdul El-Sayed. First up, it's Gretchen Whitmer, the former Senate minority leader in Michigan who drew national attention for passionate floor speeches on women's rights. Gretchen Whitmer, welcome to Detroit Today. It's good to be with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start here. You, you were in leadership in Lansing for several years, uh, but it was as leadership of a pretty tiny caucus compared to the Republican supermajority, and there weren't a lot of chances for you to advance a real agenda on your part. How do you think you'll be able to advance an agenda as governor, especially with Republicans likely maintaining at least some of their dominance in the legislature? Well, I think there are a couple of important observations, Stephen. You know, as the minority leader, I was in a position to um, negotiate some really critical uh, packages that have made a difference in Michigan. The uh, Affordable Care Act, the extension of Medicaid here in Michigan could not have happened without me as the minority leader partnering with a governor with whom I had plenty of disagreements, but we rolled up our sleeves and found common ground. And 680,000 Michiganers have health care coverage today who didn't before. The grand bargain could not have been done without uh, partnership or even getting the lights on, uh, working through that Detroit lighting package. And so even as a minority leader, I was really able to get some important things done. Now, um, thinking about what a legislature might look like after this election, I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot of unknowns. But here's what I do know. Having served with three different governors during my time in the legislature, there was one who was better able to get their agenda done than the other two, and it was John Engler. And I'm not saying that because I loved John Engler's agenda, but I recognize that his experience in the legislature, his knowledge of state government, his fearlessness about using every lever of power in the executive office to get things done is what really uh, put him in a position to get more accomplished as a governor. And I think that's something I uniquely bring to the table. And that's going to be very important because I've shown I can cross the aisle. I've shown I know how to get things done. And I'm ready to use every lever of power to work with people who want to solve problems. And I'm not afraid to take on anyone who stands in our way. So so let's talk about what that agenda would look like in some broad terms. Uh, priorities. Uh, what would you do, say, in the first hundred days or six months if you were elected governor that would uh, sort of put your stamp on the office and the legislative agenda that uh, that the legislature would, would, would have to respond to? Well, there are probably on one hand, I can count the top five, you know, the, the most important priorities that matter to families from Gogibic County to Grozeal to Gladwin to Grand Rapids. You know, they're the same. They're the dinner table issues that Michigan families are confronting, that Michigan business owners are confronting. 
um, the, the infrastructure problem that we have in Michigan. We've had a succession of leaders who were unable to make the real investments in infrastructure that matter. And right now, Michigan drivers are paying $580 a year to fix our cars instead of fixing our roads. And if you live in metropolitan Detroit, it's a lot more expensive than that. So uh, it, getting a real infrastructure package passed and uh, throwing uh, shovels in the ground next spring and putting people to work rebuilding our state is at the top of the list. Okay, so let's, certainly... let's, let's stop right there and talk okay. about how that will look different. We've seen many governors before try to turn this issue in a different direction. The current governor tried really hard, uh, and and voters turned down the proposal that uh, that he and others were backing. Why will that be different if you're governor? Well, because I'm going to write into the budget $2 billion that leverages another billion from the feds. And if I can't get the legislature to do it, we're going to go to the people and pass a bond. And the way that we constructed it is it would all go through a rebuild Michigan infrastructure bank so that the public knows and could have confidence that every dollar is actually going into infrastructure. That's what sets my plan apart from anything uh, Governor Snyder's proposed or anything anyone's even debated at the Capitol in recent years. It's a real plan to get something done, and it's bold enough to do it right. I'm tired of phony solutions. I'm tired of, you know, half measures. It is time for us to dig up the roads and rebuild them right. And when we do that, to replace the water infrastructure, you know, the pipes underneath the ground, mm -hmm. use the opportunity to lay conduit to get people connected to high-speed broadband, and uh, work with our, you know, partners in the private sector and upgrade the grid across Michigan. We can do this a lot smarter. We can put Michiganers to work, and every one of us benefits when we get this right. So if the legislature doesn't do it, then you would issue debt to, to fix infrastructure. You know what? Hope and a prayer is not going to fix our roads. A plan is, and that's what that's what I've put on the table. It's a real plan, and you know I've seen no one else even try to solve the problem in a real way. And I'm I'm proud to be the one, and certainly uh, I'm willing to work with anyone who wants has ideas of how we can make it even better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's number two on your list? Well, I, I don't know that it's number two, but you know it's Flint water has got to be uh, the top priority since. Um, Four years ago is when the governor and the attorney general signed off on using the Flint River as the source of drinking water, mm -hmm. and 8,000 children brushed their teeth with poison every night for two and a half years before anyone even knew there was a problem or listened to the families of Flint. We've got to make sure every drop of water uh, that's coming out of the pipes in Flint is safe for families, and, and that is the top priority. But we also have to recognize 71 other communities across Michigan have higher lead levels mm -hmm. in their water right now than Flint does. And that's why I go back to that infrastructure package. So it's not necessarily number two. It's all a part of the same issue. But I think making sure that every family in Michigan has clean drinking water is the top priority. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what else is on your list? Well, education. You know, we um, used to lead the world in public schools. You knew when you came to Michigan, no matter what community you called home, your children were going to have a top-notch public school education in their neighborhood. That's not true right now. We are um, dead last in the Midwest, and we are in the bottom 10 in our country where we used to lead the world. It's unacceptable, and our economy is going to pay a price for it because we're going to have a lack of skills and a lack of ability to lure talent into Michigan if our schools are that bad. So it is time to make our education system and skills a priority here in Michigan. We've got too few people with skills in every discipline. It's why one of the reasons Amazon cited for not coming here. And so I'm ready to draw a line, a hard line, 
and protect dollars in the school aid fund and so that they go to our kids' schools. The diversion started under a governor in my party. I took her on when mm-hmm. she did it. It's been expanded and blown up under this current um, administration. And when $750 million is being diverted annually from our kids' schools and we are in the back of the pack, we're doing it wrong, and it's time to change. So so would you pu- pump more into uh, the school aid fund, for instance? Would you try to, to find ways to increase what we spend on schools, or do you just think it's a matter of prioritizing uh, what we already have? Oh, we, we absolutely need to spend more. Um, just spending more is not enough. We've got to do things differently, but we definitely need to spend more. This uh, current administration and the attorney general have been in court saying there's not a constitutional right to literacy in the state. I think that tells you everything about the philosophy of the people who are making decisions right now. I believe every Michigander has a birthright to a great public school education. And um, when we've got children who cannot read, when we've got kids who are crammed into classrooms, when we've got teachers who are on the bridge card, it tells you those are the, the things that make it very clear we're not making education a priority. And you know what? I really believe a society is judged by how you treat your children, and our Michigan children deserve a heck of a lot better. So so where would that money come from if you were going to increase the per-pupil allocation, for instance? Well, let's just say you draw a line on raids on the school aid fund. Right there is three-quarters of a billion dollars, mm-hmm. Stephen. Um, the, they're, they're taking $650 million to backfill the general fund, and another $100 million is being siphoned off in, into, you know, uh, legislative pet projects. Those are dollars that are coming right out of at-risk students, right out of English language learners. These are the kids that need the the support the most, and they're paying the greatest price for you know legislative raids on the school aid fund. Is it is it time to revisit uh, Proposal A, uh, which was the the massive reform of the way we pay for for education in in the state now? Twenty four years old, I think. Uh, lots of people think it's sort of outlived its usefulness. Where do you come down on that? I think the time to revisit it was 15 years ago, <laughs> you know, so yes, it, my answer is yes. Um, you know, anytime you make a sweeping change like that, you owe it to the taxpayer, you owe it to the public, you owe it to the kids in the schools to analyze, did it accomplish its goals? And you know what? If it didn't, what do we need to do to make sure that we really are raising our education standards, that we are raising our kids up? That has never happened, and that is something that I believe is long overdue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your Democratic opponents have accused you of being sort of squishy on the issue of Enbridge's Line 5, the oil and gas pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac. What is your position on what should be done about that pipeline? I have been very uh, vocal from... The get-go, uh, it is. We need to get the oil out of the Great Lakes. We do. It is a real threat to our way of life, to our drinking water, to our economy, our agriculture, our tourism. Uh, that oil represents a, a threat to to Michigan and Michigan way of life. And um, so that's why I have said on day one, I will file to uh, enjoin the e- the easement that Enbridge has going mm-hmm. underneath the Straits of Mackinac. But we got to be very clear. It's easy for um, candidates to just simply say, I'm going to shut it down on, on day one. But that's phony. 
you, there's no spigot in the governor's office. You can't just walk in and turn a spigot and shut down uh, something of this magnitude that's been there as long as it has. We have got to have a legal strategy. Enbridge will have one as well, and every minute they delay is money in their pocket. And so this is not going to be easy, but I'm absolutely dedicated to getting the oil out of the water. Okay. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, transit and in the state of Michigan transportation more generally. You talked a little about infrastructure. Uh, is there a role that the governor can play or a more robust role that the governor can play in trying to get us, uh, especially in southeast Michigan, uh, into a better sort of position in terms of the access to and the effectiveness of mass transit? Absolutely. You know, the the powers that come in the executive office are everything from the bully pulpit to the budget to, uh, you know, appointments of, of a cabinet and uh, coordinating efforts in communities. Um, I want to be a partner to everyone who wants to create uh, regional transit. I voted for it in the legislature so that it could go before the voters. It is something that I know is critical to people who are living in metropolitan Detroit, but it is also critical to our economy. When Amazon takes Michigan off the top 20 list and cites that as one of the reasons, I, I hope that's gotten the attention of, a, of people who maybe didn't know how important that was to our ability to grow our economy and draw talent into Michigan and draw investment into Michigan. But the residents know. I worked with a woman over at DTW a month and a half ago. She um, is a single woman, makes $12.29 an hour, takes two buses from her home in Detroit out to Romulus. It takes her over two hours to do it. She's been doing this for 20 years, raised four kids doing that. It's incredible the hardship that is borne by people who are willing to work hard, ready to work hard, but don't have leaders who are able to solve the transit problem for them. So, and what so would the, what I'm would, eager to be that leader. What would the governor do? What could the governor be doing? Uh, and if you were governor, what would you be doing to try to move that issue faster and further than we have been able to before? Well, I think, you know, there are, are ways to set um, priorities in the budget that incentivize uh, that kind of coordination. Uh, there is the bully pulpit, of course. There is partnering with people like Warren Evans who, um, and, the, and the mayor who are, are taking this on and pushing forward, despite, you know, all of the other uh, debate that is being had when the, in the tri-county area. But um, I think that these are a, a few roles, but obviously um, it's got to come from the people and from the local leadership. That's who's going to vote on it, and that's why they've got to be at the lead. But I want to be a support and a convening factor and someone who will write a budget to help incentivize uh, that kind of uh, outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you quickly about uh, the budget, the ballot proposals that we're likely to see uh, in November uh, and where you stand on a marijuana legalization and redistricting. Can you give me just a, a quick thumbnail of each of those issues? Okay. Uh, marijuana legalization. I, in 2008, was the co-chair of the stem cell campaign with Joe Schwartz. It was a bipartisan effort. We were successful. I embraced that because I took care of my mom at the end of her life. And I know that the opportunity for cures, the ability to uh, bring talent into Michigan on cutting-edge science was, was something we needed to do. I also, that same year, endorsed medical marijuana because I know the relief that it could provide patients. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen leaders who have stood in the way of that becoming a successful um, practice here in Michigan, and now 
Uh, there is a movement to go to the ballot with recreational use, just legalizing it. It'll help patients as well, and I think that's part of what's driven it, the frustration that our leaders didn't abide by the will of the people and make it workable. I am going to vote for it. My goal, though, is acknowledging I believe it'll pass. My duty is to make sure that we get it done right here in Michigan, that uh, marijuana doesn't get into the hands of children, that we tax it and that the tax dollars go into health and roads and schools the way that they are supposed to, and that we make a create a system that is workable, that people can navigate and, and set a playing field that is fair and uh, protects people. Mm-hmm. Uh, redistricting, you redistricting, said. Okay. Yeah, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we know that uh, right now our, our lines are drawn so unfairly that our votes don't count the equally. Um, the legislature picks their constituents as opposed to constituents picking their legislators. And so I do support the redistricting effort. Okay. Gretchen Whitmer, Democratic candidate for governor, former state Senate Democratic leader, and former interim Ingham County prosecutor. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. I'm excited to be here anytime. Coming up, we'll talk to Sri Tanadar, who has run into criticism from some people who say he's really a Republican who simply sees a better opportunity to run on the Democratic side. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Today, we are speaking with the Democratic candidates for governor. Next week, we're going to hear from the Republicans. But some Democratic critics of our next guest would suggest that he belongs in next week's show in the field of GOP candidates. Sri Tanadar has been accused of a kind of political face swapping. Just last week, a video surfaced of Sri attending and applauding at uh, Senator Marco Rubio town hall in Iowa while Rubio was running for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. Our conversation with Sri was recorded before that video surfaced, but Tanadar was already facing criticism that he was really more of a Republican and somebody who just saw a better opportunity to run as a Democrat. That's where we began our conversation with candidate Sri Tanadar. Sri Tanadar, thank you very much for joining us on Detroit Today. Mr. Henderson, welcome for having me yes. on the show. No, it's great to see you. Uh, let's start with the idea that some reports say you floated the possibility of running as a Republican in this election. What do you view as the significant differences between the two parties and sort of how you fit into those differences? First of all, that was just a smear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's know, not true? It is absolutely not true. Uh, when I decided and to run for governor, I was looking to have a Democratic consultant to help me. Mm-hmm. And the only two people I met in Lansing were Democratic consultants who helped Democratic candidates. And why would I go to them if I was not running as a Democrat? Mm -hmm. So uh, this is, in fact, one of the consultants told me why I should not run as a Democrat because (laughs) I'm a business person and the Democratic Party will not accept me. And I said, so be it. I'm going to run as an outsider and as an entrepreneur, and I am a Democrat. I'm an immigrant, 
you know, I've given <laughs> most of my money, 93% of my donations have been to the Democratic Party. Uh, I lived in poverty. You know, I struggled for education. I'm an immigrant. And with the terrible anti-immigrant policies uh, the Republican Party has uh, advocated, why would an immigrant ever even consider? Running so this a, is all a smear uh, trying to attack uh, my credentials. Huh. So let's talk about then why you decided to run for governor. What was it about either the state of politics or governance here in Michigan? What was it about your personal experience that said, hey, I want to be the state's chief executive? Well, you know, I'm a chemist. I have a PhD in chemistry. And I've run a scientific chemical services business for the last 26 years. So I'm an entrepreneur, having started, grown many small businesses, created hundreds of jobs. And I felt that uh, I feel grateful to America. I feel grateful to Michigan for the opportunities mm -hmm. that and the things I was able to do in our great country, in our great state. And, you know, I have achieved my American dream, but the American dream is fading all across America. And American dream is fading more so in Michigan than any other place. And it fe I felt a tremendous obligation, a tremendous responsibility, and a strong need, a strong need to give back to America, give back to Michigan. I want to go help others achieve their American dream. So if that's true, and that was what pushed you into the race, why not be involved before now in democratic politics? Or why not run to be part of the legislature? I'm always very curious about people who've spent a lifetime achieving in uh, non-political realms uh, who decide, well, now I want to do this and I want to do it at the top at the top level after not really participating in the processes that uh, produce people who run for those, uh, those high offices? Well, let's uh, uh, look at it this way. Uh, Michiganders are hiring the best possible candidate that could be the next governor who will take Michigan, the state of Michigan, to the top level. It will solve the tremendous problems we have uh, in Michigan today, whether it is education, infrastructure. Now, let's look at, again, what do we need? If we were writing a job description for the next governor, uh, what we need is a strong leader, someone that has a backbone, someone that can make things happen. Now, we know the House uh, more than likely would be Democratic, but the Senate certainly is going to be Republican. So this person must have be able to negotiate, able to put thing, things together, solve problems, have a vision. Now, serving in a state house uh, doesn't necessarily qualify you uh, to be that leader, to be someone with that vision, because, you know, most of the time our politics today is so polarized and most of the lawmakers, 90 plus percent of the time, they are just voting party line. And so you don't get, as a serving as a legislator uh, or a senator, state senator, you don't get the ability to, to put together uh, big ideas, ability to um, build coalitions. Uh, you're really putting one vote. You're only in charge of your own vote. So it's a different skill set of a leader who is going to govern this state. So can you think of uh, leaders 
who you would use as role models then? I mean, other people who maybe have accomplished what you're talking about and and been effective at it without having done uh, these other kinds of, of political jobs? Uh, I guess George Romney was uh, one that came from uh, the business world. Business world, world yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the, our problem today is that uh, a lot of career politicians, uh, you know, come and tell us what we want to hear as people, and then they go serve their real masters, which are the corporations. And those, so our political process is so, uh, you know, uh, corrupt. Uh, the big money in involvement of corporate money, billion dollar money. And again, uh, the process of choosing a leader, a politician, uh, goes through, the media goes through a lot of, uh, uh, you know, investigation, and we, we kind of expect morally a perfect person, uh, but we don't necessarily look at their skill set and their ability to solve problems, th their ability to get things done. Uh, so a lot of times, good people stay away from politics uh, because how dirty politics is and, and, and all the smears. And I've noticed that as my poll numbers have risen, uh, I've seen more smear attacks on me. And uh, that is really what happens to keep good people out of politics. And this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Sri Panadar. He is a Democratic candidate for governor. Okay, so let's talk about what would happen if you were to win uh, the governorship. Um, uh, you, you have talked about how the American dream is in jeopardy nationwide and here in Michigan. What are the things that you would do and how would you do them uh, to make that dream more attainable for people here? Okay, uh, well, education is number one in my mind. Uh, education was the ladder for my success, be able to pull out of poverty. Uh, and I want that ladder is broken for too many Michiganders today. Uh, I think we got to start with uh, good education that starts with uh, uh, universal pre-K. You know, children at the age of, say, two to four, two to five, they learn so much. They have, I have a grandson who is 15 months old. <laughs> and I can see young children, how they are, their ability to learn. And we start worrying about third grade math and fourth grade reading. But it all starts with a very early stage. And I want to propose a, and implement a universal pre-K. Mm -hmm. And then we need to put enough money into our education. You know, I met teachers who are putting money out of their own pocket, buying supplies for their classroom. And that's no way to run our education system. We're putting less than $9,000 in our education uh, while spending 40 dollars average mm -hmm. per prisoner. And that math just doesn't work for that's, me. And so how do you change that math? I mean, that's been true here in Michigan for a really long time. You've heard some governors say they want to change it, others sort of shy from it. Uh, how do you sell Michiganders on putting more money into schools and not as much into prison? Well, we, we need to. We don't have a lot of discretionary money. Our budget is $56 billion, but only roughly about $10 billion is the discretionary money. Right. Of that, over $2 billion is spent on prison system. And we need to really cut that down. We need to find ways for uh, nonviolent offenders to uh, find alternate uh, ways to serve society. We need to or pay their dues to the society. We need to give them the skill set so they don't return back into the prison. 
we need to give them the skill sets. But this is uh, investing in Michigan's future. Republicans have been shied away from investing money. They talk about cost cutting. And you see what happened in st states like Kansas and Mississippi. And we need to, we can't afford another four or eight years of a Republican administration that isn't willing to invest in our education, that isn't willing to invest in our infrastructure. And that argument has been, again, forwarded by, by Democrats for a very long time. They just haven't been successful in convincing either Republicans in the legislature or voters to vote those Republicans out who don't want to do that, to, to put people in who would. What would be different if you were governor about getting that change uh, affected? Uh, good, good question. And uh, the Democratic primary, as you know, is on uh, August 7th. And uh, currently it's looking like a two-person race. Uh, uh, we have a, a classic career politician that have gone through that system. And I'm coming in as an outsider with ideas and a problem solver. And you see two different approaches. One approach is where you're just grandstanding, talking uh, speeches, uh, which hasn't solved anything. Uh, or we need, we need a problem solver, we need a doer, someone that will put uh, all sides together. And I want to give you just one example, and that would be the expansion of Medicaid uh, by uh, the current governor. Mm -hmm. And he broke uh, the pack uh, and chose to do that. Uh, because it was the right thing to do, and that allowed uh, 680,000 uh, Michiganders to be able to be have coverage. And that is the kind of leadership, that's the kind of vision we need to have, Where and we then need to sell that to uh, both sides. And uh, the governor was able to put together a coalition of moderate Republicans and Democrats, the Democrats, obviously, this is a Democratic issue, mm -hmm. and there was no issue getting Democrats on, on board. But he was able to put together the moderate uh, Republicans uh, because this was a good, sound plan. This was not a plan that was only to benefit a corporation or a billion-dollar family. This was good for Michigan, and the governor was able to sell. And we need to do similar things in education. We need to do similar things in infrastructure. And the... Leader has to have the backbone. It's not about demonizing the other side. It's about sitting across from the other side and sitting uh, at my table. I will have the experts, uh, the opponents. I would have everyone at the, all stakeholders at the table. I'll hammer out a best solution. I will, you know, provide that leadership and then I'll stick with it. And the reason I will have credibility is because I'm not beholden to any special mm. interests. Uh, let's talk about uh, infrastructure and transportation here in Michigan. Uh, can you realistically, as governor, uh, help improve those things? Think of the, the infrastructure with water and water quality systems across the state. Think of the transportation issues we have in southeast Michigan. Uh, what, would you, what would you do to sort of turn those things in a different direction as governor? Again, we need to invest. We need to think about uh, uh, the future and how would Michigan look like five years down the road, 10 years down the road. That's how an entrepreneur thinks. An entrepreneur puts together a dream, a vision, uh, you know, well-thought-out vision, and that's the kind of vision I have uh, for Michigan. And certainly, we got to uh, you know, create skill set among people. 
uh, you know, we have seen Governor Snyder give away hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to as tax breaks and tax incentive to big corporations. My focus is going to be taking that money away, putting it into creating skill sets, whether we bring vocational skills in middle schools and high schools, whether we make, uh, uh, you know, t uh, education tuition free. Uh, in public uh, universities and community colleges so that we can invest into people, we'll create that workforce. Once we do that, we also on the, we need to uh, you know, fix our infrastructure. We need to replace those lead lines, uh, not only in Flint, but also in Detroit and Saginaw and Bay City and many other places where some of the places' lead levels are even higher than those in Flint. And we need to go get that money. Mass transportation is very critical for uh, people to succeed. And we need to not allow counties uh, have a right to stop that. We need to be able to put together the budget. We need to go get our um, fair share from the federal government for a, so things like a new SULAC. We should be able to get more money. Expanding 94, we should mm -hmm. be able to get federal funding. We need to have a, a, you know, a fair uh, tax structure. So I'm, I'm for graduated tax structures so that the rich and the ultra-rich and the corporations pay their fair share of taxes, which they are not doing right now. We need to have uh, float uh, municipal, statewide municipal bonds, 30-year bonds. Uh, but a in dollar invested today will give us $10 reward five years, seven years down the road. But that someone needs to have that leadership, those, uh, that vision, I do. And that's what I bring uh, to Lansing. Mm -hmm. Can you address the reports that in court you fought attempts to rescue dozens and dozens of dogs and monkeys from a company you own that was taken into receivership and was using those animals as, uh, as test subjects? Well, you know, uh, this is another smear that I have seen coming really from Democratic side. Uh, while I own, now, look, modern man medicine requires some animal testing. Uh, the government mandates that uh, scientists do some testing uh, to develop modern medicine, and modern medicine saves millions of lives. You know, our, our loved ones, our parents, our grandparents, our children, when they get infections, uh, and, their lives and are this safe. And this was medical research that was This was medical research, uh, developing new medicine, in, innovating new medicine. I was a service company helping small companies develop medicine like for breast cancer and heart disease. And these, some of these uh, medicines was developed by very small companies. And in the recession, when my customers had financial difficulties, uh, the bank took over my business, Bank of America. So while uh, I ran the business, no animal was ever harmed. Uh, while I ran the business, no animal was ever abandoned. And then the bank took over, and I had no control over it. And to, even though I'm not a friend of the bank, which uh, repossessed my business, mm -hmm. but uh, the bank really retained many of my employees as uh, animal caregivers, uh, on their payroll, uh, using my money, uh, and the animals were well taken care of before they were handed over safely to animal shelters and uh, so, uh, and uh, families. Uh, so this is all uh, a media hype and uh, uh, exploited by my opponents, but it is all a smear. Uh, no animal was ever abandoned. No animal was ever hurt. Sri mm -hmm. Thanadar. Uh, Democratic candidate for governor. Thank you very much for joining us oh, here. Oh, this is fun. Call today. me again. Yeah. Yes. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear from Democratic candidate Abdul El Sayed. Stay with us on Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Abdul Al-Sayed left a promising career as the head of the health department in Detroit to pursue the office of governor of Michigan. This is the first elected position Al-Sayed has run for, and yet he comes to the race with an impressive resume, including a medical degree, a Ph.D. in public health, and a Rhodes Scholarship. El-Sayed left his job as top health official in Detroit more than a year and a half before the gubernatorial election and began an Obama-esque hope-and-change-type campaign. But in the intervening months, he's also faced unforeseen hurdles that appear to have chipped away at some of the positive momentum of his message. There have been challenges to El-Sayed's ability to run based on a technicality in his voting record, and his former boss, Mayor Mike Duggan, endorsed one of El-Sayed's opponents— Gretchen Whitmer. On top of that, El-Sayed has faced a steady stream of bigotry because he's a Muslim. Yet El-Sayed has maintained a message of progressive change for Michiganders, particularly working-class poor and middle-income families. Abdul El-Sayed, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. So let's start with uh, the issues that have come up that maybe you didn't anticipate uh, when you decided to run for governor, and that happens to everybody who decides to enter a campaign. Um, is it fair to say you've been a, li- a little more defensive than positive in the way that you've uh, had to meet some of those challenges? Well, you and I both know uh, the ways that challenges come up, and the context around those challenges matters a lot. Um, you know, for me, the big question was always, can a guy named Abdul El Sayed <laughs> win in a state like Michigan? Right. And that stays as context no matter what happens in, in the race. And, uh, you know, the, the kinds of more overt and also the kinds of more closeted questions about uh, who I am and whether or not people like me belong in the civic space at all, uh, those questions have come up over and over and over again. You know, we've tried to run a campaign that's been focused on ideals and ideas. Uh-huh. Uh, we've released more comprehensive policy rollouts by far than any of the other campaigns combined. And we've always been focused on what we can do to build a Michigan that empowers all of us because too many people have been left out. And so we've always tried to focus on that. But when those questions come up, to me, the the, the big conversation we need to be having, and I hope that the press would be having, is how do we understand this within the context of, of a first? And, um, you know, I know, uh, having grown up in a multi-ethnic, multi-faith uh, <laughs> home and family, uh, that the world is a complex place. But I also know that Michigan and America are big enough uh, for anyone to both take advantage of the opportunity uh, to serve in, in our society and uh, to do so uh, based on the ideals that we all come together around. And I'm excited to be able to do that. And and yet, you know, I, I've talked to lots of folks, of course, who've run for uh, governor and other offices, and it's their first time. And uh, when they deal with these challenges, you know, they, they've got to, you know, get up off their heels in some ways because they weren't anticipating it. My bigger concern always is how would you deal with those things if you won, if you were the governor? It's not going to go away, this this question, this questioning of you uh, and your legitimacy. Uh, how do you deal with that as an executive? And that's the challenge that I think really matters to voters. Yeah. Look, to me, uh, this campaign is founded on a notion that we can break the chokehold on our politics that corporations and millionaires have had for a long time to build a Michigan where people come together around a notion of government for people and by people. 
Uh, I've led in challenging circumstances. I'm the only person in this race on the Democratic side who's ever held executive leadership in government before. I rebuilt a health department in the poorest city in America in a bureaucracy that had been uh, gutted uh, during emergency management. And we took it from five employees and 85 contractors uh, to 220 overall, five different campuses across the city, solving problems like making sure kids had access to glasses, standing up against some of the biggest corporate polluters in the state, making sure that our kids weren't being exposed to lead. And that's all work that guides me now. That is the North Star. Um, what is interesting is that in our political moment, right, a lot of folks uh, are trying to suss out who somebody is. And, you know, a lot of times when I stand up, I stand up against those with power. And um, that's not common in our political moment. But I'll tell you, I learned how to do that working under an administration whose values were not my own. It's a big reason I decided to run for governor. And, um, and folks look at that and say, well, are you ready? I think that's exactly what we need right now. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I've been lancing uh, too many times that I can count. And I'll tell you, a lot of folks who don't believe in the same values that, that I believe in, um, they're not there to play patty cake with you. And if you're unwilling to stand up for what you believe in and call out uh, moments of, of untruth and moments uh, of, of exploitation, um, then, then where are you going to be? And, uh, and to me, what I've always asked myself is, how can I make sure that the people I'm standing up for uh, are the folks who don't have a voice in this system? And how do I make sure um, that when people are asking questions that seem uh, unfounded, um, that we call it for what it is and move on? And so um, I think I'm frankly the, the, the only person in this race on the left uh, who has been willing to weather a storm and keep focused on the issues that matter. Um, and storms that are not of my own making. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm excited about where this race is going. I'm excited. We have about 90 days to keep uh, moving our message. And we know that when people have heard a real message that's focused on ideals and ideas, uh, we win this race. Mm. Uh, as I said in the open, you've got this really impressive resume. But if there's a criticism that can be leveled against uh, your work history, it's that you don't stay anywhere terribly long. Uh, you were head of the health department for a short time here in, uh, in the city of Detroit. And, and before that, you did a number of different things, but, but nothing where you really dug in uh, and did that long-term work. Uh, how, do you, how do you answer that, that criticism? So I'll say a couple of things about that. The first is I work quickly. Uh, if you look at what we were able to achieve as a department at the health department, I walked into a department that had been gutted, had five employees and 85 contractors in the back of the municipal parking building in Detroit. By the time I left, we had more than doubled the size of the staff, multiplied city funding for public health 10 times, identified a thesis for our department on which we were working to do things like provide every child a free pair of glasses, stand up to big corporate polluters, make sure uh, that new moms in the city were supported by their peers, uh, stand up and make sure that our schools were safe and healthy places for our kids. Um, and the work that we did in, uh, in, in just under two years, that work, I think, speaks for itself. As a professor, um, I, uh, I started out uh, my, my role at Columbia uh, as, a, as a new professor. Um, by, my, by the time I had left my role, I had published over 100 peer-reviewed articles, written a book, um, and developed a class and coursework uh, in that area. But my, my career um, has always been about trying to ask what the responsibilities look like. I went into medicine because I love people and I love science, and I wanted to help solve disparities in health. But as I came to appreciate what created those disparities, I realized that working in a clinical scenario was not going to be 
uh, ultimately what would allow me to address the system as it stands. And that's why I went into public health. I was a professor for some time, came to appreciate that my writing uh, was more and more about less and less to people who already agreed with what I had to say. Um, And it didn't help that I worked in the 15th floor of a marble white building, literally the ivory tower. Um, And so I left academia to come home to rebuild the health department here in the city. But we did a lot of work on issues related to infant mortality, vision deficits, asthma, pollution, lead poisoning. But when it came down to politically challenging issues, uh, the administration I was working under did not have the gumption to actually make politically hard choices. This city continues to shut off water on 17,000 homes this year alone. We have a demolitions program that's being investigated by the FBI that also uh, is tangibly uh, exposing children to lead. And every time I would stand up to say something about this, uh, it was clear that the administration didn't want to hear it. And so I had to ask myself, how much can you actually do working for an administration whose values are not your own, where they bury deep under their agenda the things that are ultimately hurting people? And as a public health doctor, I have a responsibility to my craft and a responsibility to the people I serve. And ultimately, that's watching that happen, watching Flint get poisoned uh, through a similarly corporately owned system, emergency management, let's be clear about what that is, um, and, uh, and, and, and watching Donald Trump get elected president, I had to step off and ask myself, what's my responsibility now? You know, the first person anybody who ever told me that I should run for office was actually at my college commencement at Michigan. And um, uh, I was the senior speaker, and President Clinton was, was the, the, the main speaker that anybody, including my own parents, went to go listen to. <laughs> and, um, you know, after I gave my speech, he gave his speech and said some really nice things about me and his speech, but came up to me afterwards and, and, and asked me, looking in my eyes, he said, why are you going to medical school? And I looked at him for a minute. I said, look, I love people. I love science. I'm also brown. That's what we do. Um, but, uh, but he said, you know, you, you've got a gift for communicating. Maybe someday you'll consider running for office. This was six years after 9-11. I looked mm-hmm. at him. I said, I don't know if you saw my first name, mm-hmm. but there are 11 <laughs> letters in my first name. And that's just my first name. I, uh, I just don't think that's going to work out for me. Yeah. And he said, no, I understand. But 10 years on, I'm, I'm watching how the sausage gets made, realizing why it is the people that I was sworn to serve both as a doctor and a health commissioner, always get a bum deal, always get the wrong end of the stick, and had to ask myself, what's my responsibility? So I've been trying to ask myself, what is true north and what is the responsibility over time? Um, and that's led me to a number of career changes. But I do know that the responsibility to public service is about elevating folks who don't have a voice. And that's the kind of campaign we've been running. We've been now to over 120 cities. And the most incredible thing, Stephen, is that the challenges that poor and working and retired people face, whether you're talking about urban communities or rural communities, they're the same. And they come down to a system of politics that has ultimately sold politicians to the highest bidder. And um, that's a that's a problem. And that is the core root of all of the challenges that I've been working on throughout my career. And so uh, I think hooking to that true north and asking ourselves what the big responsibility is, uh, that is the that is really for me the North Star um, and something that uh, I hope will always continue to guide uh, my work uh, as a professional. Okay, I want to pretty quickly tick down a couple of topic areas and just uh, get your brief summary of what you would do differently than what we're doing now. Let's start with education. What, how do we fix schools in Michigan? Look, Betsy DeVos has completely upended Michigan's education system. We have a responsibility to rethink that. And her entire approach has been focused on creating the way for these for-profit charter schools uh, to eat away at our public schools. And I don't believe in for-profit educational systems. And so we would create an off-ramp for for-profit operations for any charter school. We would change the way that we authorize charter schools so that it would sit under the state rather than these 14 uh, 
uh, different authorizers who are incented to make a buck mm-hmm. uh, off of authorizing these charter schools, and we would raise the per pupil per year allocation, and we would make it more equitable. We can drive 30 minutes north, and those kids are getting, on average, $780 per pupil per year more. We've got to fix that. It also means universal pre-K, and it means uh, making sure that every student who goes uh, to postgraduate education who comes from a family earning less than $150,000 a year graduates debt-free. Mm-hmm. What about uh, transportation? What's the state's role in the transit conundrum we have here in southeast Michigan and across the state? There are three big issues that people are facing. Number one, auto insurance is way too expensive, and I presume you're going to ask me about health care, uh, and we can talk about it then. But let's be clear. The reason auto insurance is so expensive is because we're asking auto insurance to also be health insurance, and we've got uh, hospital industry and uh, the legal industry making a lot of money, as well as a system of redlining that's preventing certain folks from getting a fair shake at good auto insurance. So that's number one. We've got to solve it. Number two, it's the fact that our roads and bridges aren't working. <laughs> as a doctor, I can tell you, if you got cut, and I know your cut needs stitches, and I, I, I send you away uh, with a Band-Aid, I, I'm liable for malpractice. But we do that every single year with our roads and our bridges, and we need a sustainable system of solving it. We've proposed an infrastructure bank that would take investments over time and help us to really focus uh, on long-term fixes for our roads. Let's talk about health care. The state, uh, you know, uh, Republican state embracing uh, the Affordable Care Act with Medicaid expansion. That was a huge milestone, but it came with costs, costs that uh, were somewhat enduring now, but but that we will see rise precipitously in the out years. Do you think we need to pay more to sustain Medicaid expansion? So not only do we need to sustain Medicaid expansion and fight any of these ridiculous work requirements that are going to disproportionately fall on urban communities rather than rural communities, but we also need to stand up and say that's not enough. 600,000 Michiganders don't have access to health care at all, and all of us pay way too much in health care. I mean, we can, we can almost see Canada from here. And in Canada, I just want to contrast the difference. They spend 11 cents on the dollar relative to our 19 cents on the dollar in terms of all money spent on the economy on health care. Mm-hmm. They live on average two years longer. Their infant mortality rates are lower. They do more in terms of preventive care, and they're all happier with the care that they get. We are not doing health care right, and that's largely because we've left it to two big industries who continue to profiteer on us. The first is the insurance industry. You've got the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield making $13 million last year. That, to me, is pretty absurd. Why? Because all we do is pay into that system, and then every time you need a payout, you got to fight them. Everybody knows that. And we've got to stand up against that 15 cents on the dollar that they earn in profits that go to people like their CEO and say, enough is enough. You're not providing the care that you deserve. You're locking people that we deserve. You're locking people out of the system. And we have an opportunity to think more equitably and more broadly. And then it's the hospital industry. And what's happened is that hospitals and insurers can collude around pricing that actually ends up locking out the little guy. And what that ends up looking like is, you know, the for-profit takeover of the DMC. Right. What that ends up looking like is the shutdown of rural hospitals across the state. So I believe in a single payer health system. It would be something similar to Medicare for all. uh, But what we would do is stand up that system here in Michigan. And here's the thing. The out-of-pocket costs would go way down. Why? Because we're Xing out that 15 percent profit motive from the the the, um, insurers. And we are holding the hospital system accountable. So the cost of care goes down. Everybody gets health care and we can invest on the front end. Uh, in preventive care. Okay. Abdul El-Sayed, Democratic candidate for governor, thanks very much for joining us on Detroit Today. I appreciate you having me, Stephen. Thank you. 
That's going to do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow live from Mackinac Island. I hope you will join us. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.